Now take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. We are going to focus on verses 1 through 4. The section that we're going to look at here, verses 1 through 14, I'm going to split it up into three lessons. So this morning it's 1 through 4. Next week, Lord willing, 5 through 11. And then in two weeks, Lord willing, 12 through 14. But I will read the whole section for context. So Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So looking at this passage, just to kind of give us some GPS coordinates as to where we are in the book of Romans, okay? Again, Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, we talked about how the righteousness of God has been revealed against sinners, against all mankind. In Romans 3.21 to 4.25, we see how the righteousness of God is revealed by faith in Jesus Christ. So as, as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed to us. It is given to us through faith. And now we're in the bigger section that we're in is Romans 5 through the end of chapter 8, where we now are seeing the benefits that come to us because of our justification, because of the righteousness of God that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. And we finished Romans 5 last week, and we looked at it in two main sections. That first section, verses 1 through 11, because we have been justified by faith, we have several tangible benefits that accrue to us because of that righteousness and justification by faith. We have peace with God. So whereas before we had enmity because of our sin, we now have peace because we've been reconciled. And we also have access to God. So whereas before, because our sin kept us barred from the presence of God, now because of our justification by faith, we are given access to God by faith. And of course, that passage ends with the love of God being poured abroad in our hearts. So because of our justification by faith, God is now freely able to lavish his love upon us because we are now in a state of grace. 
And then that last section we looked at again, we see how, you know, the question gets asked, how can one man save the human race? It's because one man put the whole human race into a state of sin and misery. So we saw this death in Adam, life in Christ. So Adam's sin was imputed to us through our natural birth. But then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us or applied to us through our faith. By Adam's sin, we were all condemned to death. But by Christ's righteousness, we we are all guaranteed eternal life. And now as we get to Romans 6, the big theme for Romans 6 really is that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. That's the big kind of overarching theme we're going to see in Romans 6. The power of sin has now been broken. This is another benefit that we get because of our justification by faith in Christ. And where we are right now, this passage 1 through 14, because of Christ's death to sin, we too have died to sin. And we're going to explore that over the next couple of weeks. And then Paul will finish off chapter 6 by saying, since we are no longer slaves to sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. And that's kind of what um, governs that last half of the chapter. Now, as we said yesterday, last week, and we've mentioned this before, um, when Paul comes into Romans chapter 6, his discussion here is prompted by a question, which you can see at the end of chapter 5 in verses 20 and 21, where Paul says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So when the law comes in, the law, instead of, you know, the law doesn't make us righteous, the law doesn't justify us. All the law does is sort of stimulate and kind of provoke our sinful nature so that we, you know, the law comes in and we sin even more. So where the law comes in, sin abounds. And then he goes on to say, but where sin abounded, grace overabounded. That word in the Greek is it's like, it's like hyperabounded. <laughs> it's like, okay, sin abounds, like, you know, but grace, like, I'm going to overabound over your sin. That's kind of what's going on here. So grace abounded much more. So as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, as we mentioned a few times already, it's easy to see how this teaching by Paul can be abused, right? We looked at it last week. We've mentioned this before. It's like, okay, grace expands to cover my sin. So the more I sin, the more grace will expand to cover over that. So I can abuse this, right? I can turn this into a license to sin. I could say, all right, God likes to shower grace over my sin. I'm just going to keep sinning, and that just increases God's grace That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. And well, we'll look at Paul's answer in a moment. But what I want to talk about a little bit here is the, you know, you hear these terms kind of bandied about from time to time. But the difference between antinomianism, legalism, and biblical Christianity. So who here knows, does anybody know what antinomianism is? Okay. It's... The, the, the word, uh, it's, it's kind of derived from the Greek, anti meaning against, and uh, nomos is law. So you're anti-law. That's what an, an antinomian is, one who is against the law. Of course, legalism is one who likes the law and likes to add to the law. <laughs> okay. The best way to think about 
the difference between antinomianism and legalism is to think of the parable of the prodigal son. Because the, the, the younger son is the antinomian, the older son is the legalist. Okay, so the, the, the younger son doesn't like living under the father's rule. He says, I want to be free. I want to do my own thing. Let me, you know, father, give me my share of the, the inheritance so I can go do my own thing. That's the antinomian. I don't want to be under your rules. I don't like living under your house. I don't like living under your instructions. Whereas the legalist is the older son who is also very joyless. When, when, the, when the, son, the younger son returns and the father showers grace upon him and, and accepts him back into the family, the older son is outside working in the field. He won't join the party. And he's like, you know, how could my dad do this? I've slaved for my father all these years and he's never thrown me a party. Why is this? You know, and he doesn't even call when he's, when he's talking to his father. He doesn't even call him my brother. He says, this son of yours. <laughs> Anybody ever do that? <laughs> when you're arguing with your spouse over the children, you're like, you know, your child did this. <laughs> it's not that it's our child, too. You're like, your son did this. Not my brother. Your son did this. And so on and so forth. So you've got the, the antinomian, the one who doesn't like the law, and the legalist, the one who likes the law in the sense that he likes to add to it. Now, there are those who see the grace of God as being so gracious, as we see here at the end of Romans 5, that we can sort of sin with impunity because God is so gracious that he'll just cover our sins. That is what antinomianism is in a nutshell, is that God's grace covers everything, so I don't, I'm not bound by the law. I can live my life Sort of, I've got the, you know, the get out of hell free card, you know, be, you know which is faith in Christ. I, I don't have to worry about any, I don't, my, my sin doesn't, doesn't matter. Then there are others who like to seek to impose their own standards to Christianity. They add to the gospel by saying, you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be a Christian, even though X, Y, and Z are not found anywhere in scripture. That's the legalist. It's adding the traditions of men to the word of God, something the Pharisees were very often guilty of. Jesus tells them, says, you have, you have corrupted the word of God by adding your traditions to it. Well, the question that Paul asks in 6.1 is a question that is born out of fear that the gospel of free grace opens the door wide to antinomianism, where he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace should abound? In other words, Sin equals more grace, so my sin leads to grace abounding. Now, I firmly believe that if we preach and teach the whole counsel of God and preach the pure gospel, that we will be labeled as antinomians by the legalists and legalists by the antinomians. (laughs) Biblical Christianity is going to get it from both sides. The, the antinomian is going to say, well, you're, you know, you're telling us we need to obey the commandments of God. But, you know, I mean, we've been freed from the law. We've been freed from sin. Why should we do that? And the legalist is to say, you're preaching a gospel of cheap grace. How can you do that? You need to, you know, Christians need to do this and this and this and this and this. So if you're preaching a pure gospel, you're going to get attacked from both sides. That's just the way it is. The reason being is because both sides are perversions of the gospel. So any perversion of the gospel is going to look at the pure gospel and it's going to critique it, it's going to attack it. 
Now, I wasn't, I mean, I was alive during this period of time, but I wasn't following what was going on in here. But back in the 80s, there was a controversy over what was called uh, Lordship Salvation. Anybody hear of that? I read a book about it, but I read a book about it like 20 years later that John MacArthur wrote called The Gospel According to Jesus. And it was his sort of take on the Lordship Salvation controversy. Now, it's called Lordship Salvation because it's against what some other Christians were teaching who taught a view of salvation that whether or not this was a a fair representation of it, it ended up uh, becoming called easy believism. Easy believism. And essentially teaches that if one claims to have faith in Jesus Christ, one is saved. Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't that what we believe? (laughs) I mean, we believe if you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved. Yes, because Paul says to the Philippian, jail, the Philippian jailer at the end of chapter 16 of the book of Acts, when he says, what shall I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So yes, that is the gospel. But the advocates of easy believism will take it a step further. This teaching usually comes along with the teaching of what is called the so-called carnal Christian the carnal Christian, the, the fleshly Christian, the worldly Christian. And this idea of the carnal Christian comes out of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And you can turn to 1 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 3. Here's a little bit of background about the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a, a gifted church. The church of Corinth had a lot of gifted people. They were rich in spiritual gifts. But they were a messed up church. They had a lot of things going wrong with them. They, were, they, were, they had broken down into factions over popular charismatic teachers. They had, a, they had a mistaken view of the resurrection. They had a mistaken view of the spiritual gifts. Uh, they had a mistaken view of the Lord's Supper. Paul had a lot of correcting to do here. And one of the things here he says in regard to the sectarianism that was going on there, you know, they would say uh, at one point it says, you know, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus. And you had a group that said, well, you know, we're of Jesus. So they were kind of breaking off into cliques surrounding around popular Christian teachers. And Paul says at the beginning of chapter three here, he says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. That's where they get the phrase carnal Christian. In other words, it's like a lesser level of Christianity. You've got the spiritual Christians and then you've got the carnal Christians. So the carnal Christian is the one who accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, but hasn't quite made him Lord of his life. So it's like entry-level Christianity. Okay, You haven't attained to the the higher level. You haven't, you haven't gone through the silver or the gold door or whatever you want to call it. You're, you're sort of like in the, you know, the baby section. <laughs> okay. You, you're still in elementary school. This is a professed Christian who still leads a somewhat sinful lifestyle, who still hasn't started fighting sin in his life. Now, these easy believist people also take a somewhat warped view of the perseverance of the saints. We teach the perseverance of the saints here. Uh, and they'll call it once saved, always saved. Okay, have you ever heard that phrase, once saved, always saved? Okay, so once saved, always saved means, in other words, from their view, this is their, their perspective, the easy believism person. 
That once a person has either prayed the sinner's prayer, so if you are evangelizing someone and you get them to pray the sinner's prayer and they accept Jesus into their heart, now you're saved. And once saved, always saved. So if, as long as you prayed the prayer, as long as you either like walk down the aisle during a, a revival meeting, you know, you get the revivalist up there and he's preaching and you get the 37 stanzas of just as I am and the soft music playing, you get the emotional kind of thing worked up and you know, and they got the preacher up there in his soft voice. Don't you want to give your heart to Jesus? Come now. The Lord is holding out his hands to you. Come now. He will, he will take you as you are. And you're like, yes, I'll go and be saved. You walk down the aisle and you give your life to Christ. So if you've either prayed the sinner's prayer, you've walked down that aisle, you've signed a card, whatever you've done, as long as you can pinpoint a point in your time where you've accepted Christ in your life, you are saved. Now, they'll tell you that the next step you have to do is to repent of your sin, and now you have to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Now, needless to say, this idea of once saved, always saved, that is, you know, that Christian can live any way they want to, as long as they can point back to a period in their life where they've done that one thing, whatever that one thing is, they will say that person is saved, even though that person could be living a life of utter sin. Okay? So this is an abuse of once saved, always saved. It is the abuse of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Which is why many of these people, they're non-reformed in their thinking, will look at reformed theology, they'll look at Calvinism and say, well, that's of the devil. Because you, you, know, you teach that, that, you know, that person who makes that profession of faith but doesn't live a saved lifestyle is not saved. Now, the point here is not to rehash this lordship, easy believism debate. The point here is to show that there will always be people, Christians and non-Christians, who hear the gospel message of free grace and think that salvation basically is just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's just, you know, once you've done this act, once you've done this thing of believing, you're saved and that you don't have to live a holy lifestyle. That's the antinomian. They have the fire insurance, so you can live whatever way you want. You're covered. Now, Paul was constantly condemned by both sides. Again, like I said, the true gospel attacks, it gets attacked from both sides. He was condemned by both the antinomians and the legalists, which is what convinced me, convinces me, among many things, that he was right about the gospel. However, the cure for antinomianism isn't legalism. Okay, you don't combat a, a, an anti-law view of the gospel by slapping law on top of it. Okay, that's not how you fight the antinomian. You fight the antinomian with the gospel, just like you fight the legalist with the gospel. Antinomianism and legalism are really just two sides of the same coin that the gospel is the solution for. And that's what Paul's going to show us here in Romans 6, 1 through 14. So as we look at this passage over the next few weeks, we're going to see three things. Our passage this morning, 1 through 4, is baptized into Christ's death. And then in verses 5 through 11, is dead to sin, alive in Christ. And then finally, uh, verses 12 through 14, is breaking the dominion of sin. So Romans 6, 1. Paul begins Romans 6 by asking the question that comes up after his statement in Romans 5, 20, and 21. We can turn back to Romans if we haven't already. 
Um, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So if where sin abounded, grace abounded much more is true, then as we've been saying all along, we should continue in sin that grace may abound. That's the, that's the, the question. That only sounds logical, right? Grace covers all our sins, so the more we sin, the more grace abounds. This stands to reason. Now, think for a moment. <laughs> How perverse is it to infer that the gospel of Jesus Christ would or should lead people to continue in sin? I mean, it is in the gospel that we find forgiveness of sin, right? That's the whole idea of the gospel is that Jesus Christ dies on the cross so that your sins can be paid for. Your sin debt can be paid for. Your guilt can be forgiven. The sins can be washed from your, from your account. Why would you then turn around and say, this gives me a license to sin? I mean, last week I used the illustration of a maxed out credit card. So the grace of God in Jesus Christ that abounds much more over our sin is like having a multi-billionaire pay off your maxed out credit card. Now, if this sin more that grace will abound, crowd were right, then that just lets us keep that just lets us to keep maxing out our credit card, so that this multi-billionaire, who I guess apparently just loves to pay off people's credit card debt, will just continue paying off people's credit card debts. It's ludicrous on the face of it, and we'll see why in just a moment. Just another little illustration. Consider. Our government welfare system. Okay, I'm already seeing eyes rolling, (laughs) but that's okay. Consider our government welfare system. Now, I think the vast majority of people, I may be wrong, but I'm going to step out on a limb here. I think the vast majority of people are willing to help those who are unable to help themselves. I think that's fair. I think if, if someone is destitute, I think it is in our heart to want to help someone who cannot help themselves. Now, we can argue over the ethics of forced government taxation to redistribute those funds to needy people. But in general, the concept of welfare is not offensive. If I have more and I see someone is destitute and needs something that I can provide, I think it is is a kindness. And it is a a well-received kindness that everybody would consider doing to help someone in need. But what is not controversial, or at least shouldn't be, is when people get frustrated because what it appears to be is that there are some who game the system, who know what to do in order to keep getting money. They do exactly what they need to do, no more, no less, to get the money, and they don't do anything to get themselves out of this system. So when those who are less fortunate are taking advantage of the system to keep getting money without doing anything to better their lot in life, That is what frustrates many people with the welfare system. And that's similar to what Paul is saying here in Romans 6.1. Don't think you can game the system. Sin is not something you can just do because you know Christ is going to forgive it. Okay? Now let's look at this phrase here a little bit here where he says, continue in sin. I think in in the handout I put out, I put the Greek in there, not that you guys care but just that I can put the Greek in there. But it's epimenumen te hamartia. So that is to remain in sin. Um, Because the way Paul speaks here, it sounds like to be a Christian, one has to be sin-free. Okay, 
where he says, in, uh, you know, you cannot continue. And so, well, we're going to get to that in a second. But the idea here is, if that's the case, then that would be a contradiction of what the Bible says, says elsewhere. In 1 John 1.8, John writes, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not that we have to be sinlessly, uh, you know, we have to live a sin-free lifestyle. The idea is where he says, how can anyone who can, you know, you cannot continue in sin. We're gonna, like I said, we're going to get to that in a second. But this word here, where he says continue in sin, is a word that John likes to use in his gospel too. It's the word meno. It means to abide or to remain. Um, you know, where you know, John will say this in John chapter 15, where he says, you know, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, that one will bear much fruit. That's the same word there, meno, that you get here in Paul, where he says continue to sin. But here Paul is using it in a sort of an intensified uh, form of the word which almost carries the idea of like to persevere in sin. It's not just I'm, I'm just living a sinful lifestyle. It's like I am actively living. A, I'm going out of my way to live a sinful lifestyle. In other words, the question Paul is asking rhetorically is, shall we persevere in a constant state of sin so that grace can abound? All right, what do you guys think? Shall we live and persevere in a constant state of sin so that grace abounds? Who thinks that's a good plan? No hands are going up. That's good. (laughs) That is not a good plan. It is not a winning plan. And what's the apostle's answer in verse 2? He says, certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Now, we've seen this response before. This is the famous, like, hard no that Paul likes to use the, to, at the expense of being crass, the hell no that, that Paul likes to use in other places in Romans, in 3, 4, in chapter 3, verse 6, in chapter 3, verse 31. Uh, other translations will say, King James says, God forbid. Uh, another translation says, absolutely not. The NIV and the ESV say, by no means. The New American Standard says, may it never be. And then this one, it's, this is weak. Of course not. That, that's a weak one. Don't use that translation. That's the New Living Translation. That's very weak. I like the King James. God forbid. <laughs> God forbid. New King James, well, that's certainly not. Eh, I like God forbid. Or the New American, may it never be. The point is, it's a hard no. In other words, the thought that a Christian, one who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, can abuse that grace and persevere in a life of sin is preposterous to the apostle. This is an illogical concept. You might as well tell Paul there is such a thing as a square circle or, an, or an, a married bachelor or an honest politician. It's, it's a contradiction in terms. A Christian living a life in sin is a contradiction in terms. Now, to explain his response, Paul says it is impossible for someone who has died to sin to live any longer in it. Now, again, think about this for a moment. Paul is saying something very profound here that ought to have a significant impact in our lives. If you are in Christ, you have died to sin. You have died to sin. We'll explain a little bit 
in a moment what, how that works. But the fact of the matter is you have died to sin. Through sin, death reigned. And in Christ, that reign is broken. It is broken because you have died to sin. The power of sin in your life has been broken. Let that sink in. The power of sin in your life has been broken. Now, the applications of this to the Christian life are revolutionary, to say the least. In Adam, we sin because we're sinners, right? We looked at that last week. Do you, are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? And the, the fact of the matter is, in Adam, you sin because you are a sinner. You inherit his, his sin, you inherit his guilt, you inherit his corruption. By Adam's offense, sin spread to all humanity. We were made sinners through our union with Adam. That's what he gets across in, in chapter 5. In Christ, that power in your life has now been broken. It's broken because you have died to sin. Through that death, you are now free from the dominion of sin. And that means you are now free to obey Christ. That's what Paul's argument is going to be in the latter half of chapter 6. You are now free. You're not free to do whatever you want. You're free now to obey Christ. That also means if you sin as a, as a Christian, you've chosen to let that sin back into your life. You've relinquished your freedom. You've abdicated. And you've allowed sin to come in and control you again. Which is why Paul will say later in verse 11 of this chapter, he says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. That word reckon. You know, maybe if you're from the south, you might know where I reckon this. It's just, it's a consider, consider the fact of the matter that you are dead to sin. Sanctification begins by reckoning that you are dead to sin. Now, if you think this is only something that's found in Romans, I've listed a few verses there. Uh, We're not going to turn to them, but Galatians 2.19 says, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Or Colossians 3.3, for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Again, take a moment to consider what this means in your life. The inherited guilt and corruption that we, we got from being in union with Adam is gone. It is gone. It has been removed. We have died to it. The hold and the sway that sin and corruption had in our lives has been shattered. Isn't that good news? I think it's good news. I think it's wonderful news. That power in your life has been broken. Now, verse 3 is going to show us how we have died to sin. What makes this truth a reality? Verse 3 says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, there's a lot going on in this verse, so buckle up. Okay, we're, we're going to go on a ride, okay? There's a lot in this verse, so let, let's buckle up. The first thing Paul stresses here is the word no. 
for you know, or do you not know? That's how he phrases it here. That word literally means to be ignorant, to not to know, usually because of a lack of information. The Paul, and the way Paul's using this question here is really meant to sort of underscore the idea that his readers actually did know this. Paul is stressing something we already know, but we may need a gentle reminder, a sort of a nudge to be reminded that this is something we already know. We see this a lot in Jesus, right? Jesus, when he confronts the, the Pharisees and he says something, the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? And it's like, Jesus will say to them, one of his favorite phrases then says, have you not read in your own scriptures? <laughs> have you even read this? You guys are supposed to be you know, Bible scholars, right? It's like, haven't you read this in your scriptures? You know, the obvious answer is yes, they've read it. They just <laughs> either ignoring it or they don't believe it or, or whatever. The point is, Paul's saying here, you know this. Do you not know? Now, what is it that we should know? He says that when we were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. This is a very rich verse, and we're not going to be able to really do it justice. Um, that word there, baptized, it just comes literally out of the Greek, transliterated out of the Greek. The, the Greek word is baptizo, uh, to be baptized. It carries several meanings with it. It can mean to dip. It can mean to immerse. It can mean to submerge. It can mean to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water. It can also mean to overwhelm. Now, one thing is, should be hopefully clear. What Paul's referring to here is not water baptism. This is a dry verse, okay? There's no water in this verse, okay? He's not referring to your actual water baptism. He is referring to the reality to which baptism points to. When you are baptized, either as a child or as an adult believer, convert to Christianity, when you are baptized, however Whatever mode, whether it's, it's pouring, whether it's sprinkling, whether it's immersion, either way, that is a symbol that points to this reality. You were baptized into Christ. The Westminster Larger Catechism. Again, I'm sorry I had to go outside of our normal confessional standards, but the Westminster Larger Catechism has an excellent question and answer on this. It is 165. The question is, what is baptism? And the catechism, the larger catechism says this. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and a seal. Water baptism is a sign and a seal of ingrafting into himself that is union with Christ. We'll talk about that in a moment. Of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit. It is a sign and a seal of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life. And whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church. So baptism is also a sort of a way of bringing. It's, it's like the, the sign of the covenant being applied to someone who is coming into the church. So it's a sign of uh, being admitted into the visible church and an enter and entering into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Holy is in H W H O L L Y, like you're entirely the Lord's. 
Now, Belgic Confession, Article 34, talks about baptism. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26, talks about baptism. So you can say in a sense that being baptized into Christ is being dipped, immersed, or submerged into Christ. It's another way of saying that this is union with Christ. We are being united to Christ, which is why, like I said, I like the way the larger catechism talks about it. It's a sign and the seal of our ingrafting, our ingrafting. This is a glorious Christian truth, union with Christ, and it's one of the fruit of the Protestant Reformation. Now, you know, you see this difference between the Lutherans and the Reformed. The Lutherans emphasize justification by grace through faith, which is a great and glorious truth. That is their grid through which uh, confessional Lutherans will see everything. But us, the Reformed, Presbyterian Continental Reform, we emphasize union with Christ. That is the grid through which we see everything. It is through our union with Christ that all of the benefits of Jesus Christ are given to us. And this union with Christ is expressed and symbolized by way of baptism. So now Paul concludes his argument. I'm skipping a little bit, but Paul will conclude his argument here in verse 4, where he says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So Paul says, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death. Because of our union with Christ, we were united with Christ into his death. So when Jesus died to sin because of our union with Christ, we died to sin because of our union with Christ. See how that works? Union with Christ means that when Christ died to sin, we who are in Christ, we also die to that sin. We have died to sin because Jesus Christ died to sin, and we, through baptism and union, have died with him. Moreover, not only are we united with, his, uh, united with him in his death, but we are also united with him in his resurrection. So just as when he died to sin, we died to sin. When he was raised from the dead, we too were raised, as Paul will say here, in newness of life. We have been raised, now we should walk in newness of life. That is the purpose, that is the goal, that is the end for which we were raised with Christ, so that we might have a new walk. In other words, then, to wrap this up, Christ didn't die so that we could keep on sinning. That's what Paul starts this whole section with. He didn't die so that you can just keep on living the way you want to live. That's why Paul gives such an emphatic no way when he's asked, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If I may put it in blunt language, my own translation would be, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? It is impossible for one who has died with Christ to live in sin because he has been raised with Christ for the purpose of walking a new walk and living a new life. Because of our union with Christ, we are new men and women. And this is a truth that we always need to keep before us in our battle with sin. 
And it's why Paul emphasizes this is something you know. So the first battle in sanctification is knowing, is knowing this truth. You have died to sin. You have been raised in Christ. One of my favorite verses in all of this is Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ was crucified, I was crucified with him. Now it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So as we said earlier, the cure for antinomianism is the gospel. There is no such thing as cheap grace. Grace isn't cheap. Salvation may be free for us, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We don't have to do anything. As Fred so aptly pointed out in Heidelberg 60 and 61, it is of faith. We don't do anything to it, to earn it. We don't put any forth any works to get it. It is free for us, but it costs the precious Son of God, Jesus Christ, everything. It is not cheap. He paid the debt of our sin by his precious blood. Grace is not cheap. Which is why it is unthinkable to presume that we can sort of persevere in this life of sin because of God's grace for us in Christ. That kind of thinking should be anathema to the gospel. Well, that's where we'll stop here next week, November 8th. Lord willing, we'll continue Paul's argument in this section by looking at verses 5 through 11 as Paul's now going to expand on this idea of dead to sin and alive in Christ.